Hi, and welcome to another episode of SwitchCast, a podcast delving into the world of film brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Fenton. I'm Daniel Lemon. And I'm Chris Edwards. It's Thursday the 2nd of November 2017. On this week's show, are you a fan of the Scream movies? How about Silver Linings Playbook, Kill Bill, or even Chicago? Has your love wavered since the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, knowing the man behind these titles and what he's done? We discuss the legacy of Harvey and the others who will fall in his wake. And as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Let's get straight into it with Loving Vincent, the film celebrating the legacy of Van Gogh. Jake checked out this literal work of art and filed this report for us. Inspired by more than 100 of his paintings and 800 of his letters, Loving Vincent explores the final months of post-impressionist painter Vincent Van Gogh and his untimely and mysterious death in 1890 at the age of 37. The story is visually interpreted through his paintings, including many of Van Gogh's most iconic portraits and landscapes, told in his own words and those of the people who knew him. Set after Van Gogh's passing, Amanda Rulin, played by Douglas Booth, comes upon a letter from the fabled painter to his brother Theo and begins the journey to deliver it. In the process, Rulin encounters all the people closest to Vincent before his death and who featured in his artworks, played by actors like Chris O'Dowd, John Sessions, Jerome Flim, Saoirse Ronan, Helen McCrory, and Aidan Turner. Great artists are not peaceful souls. That is the price of your path. Is it worth it? Did he change his mind? Did he want to live after all? You want to know so much about his death. What do you know of his life? What did you do for him? I would like to show by my work what this nobody has in his heart. Your loving Vincent. Loving Vincent is billed as the first fully painted animated feature film. First shot as a live action depiction and then coloured over in a technique known as rotoscoping via 65,000 paintings, 4,500 litres of oil paint and 125 painter animators. Directors Dorota Kabila and Hugh Welshman have created a kinetic work of art. You can't help but wonder how Van Gogh himself would have felt to have seen his extraordinarily visceral paintings brought so liquidly to life as a moving film. Four stars. I have to ask, because based on, obviously I haven't seen this film, but based on the trailer, and honestly the story didn't grab me, it's the visuals that are supposed to, but it just seemed kind of Hmm. gimmicky to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds it seems like a really lovely concept, but there's been talk about this film for years because of how long it's taken to make. The fact that um, seven years, from what I've heard, um, again, not having I haven't had a chance to see it. It was sold out at the Melbourne Film Festival. Um, uh, yeah, apparently it, it, it it's kind of lacking in the story, but visually it's incredibly rich. And apparently, it's a really great score. Clint Manzel's score is supposed to be fantastic, um, but yeah, it does seem a little bit like oh this is a nice idea and they're just kind of doing it it also has douglas booth at aiden turner in it so it's like you know two pretty men who can't act that's already a little bit of a mark against it (laughs) you do love your douglas booth i don't love my douglas booth no not at all i see douglas booth and i'm like oh a vacuum of acting facetiousness daniel facetiousness But it just doesn't seem to aid in the story at all, especially since these paintings, the the frames that are painted, aren't done by Van Gogh himself. They're done by Mm. other artists imitating Van Gogh, where in the past there have been films like A Scanner Darkly that have been rotoscoped, which sort of add to the storytelling. I'm just not sure if we're getting that same effect here. I kind of, I would have thought this would have been a much more interesting way to approach making a documentary film about Van Gogh, to bring his, similar in a way that um, Mm -mm. with... Uh, Mr. Turner, the Mike Lee film, there were sequences where you saw the paintings of Turner come to life in a very subtle way, which was just there to kind of complement as opposed to overtake the narrative. So I kind of feel like a better way to have approached this may have actually been to do it through documentary filmmaking where you use these watercolour sequences to bring the paintings to life or maybe just use them to uh, dramatise sections of Van Gogh's life while complementing that with uh, you know, contemporary interviews and archival material and stuff like that. Because I think it's it's a similar thing to a lot of biopics that maybe there's just not enough of a story here to sustain it, particularly when it's 
got such a big a, a big artistic concept behind it. Well, I think the issue is that there's still uh, a lot of questions about Van Gogh and his actual life. There's actually a lot that we don't know about him. We don't know a lot about his life and his death. So uh, it's kind of this weird thing where they're making a story which is a bit questionable. I think a documentary could have been a bit a bit challenging in that regard. But um, I, I, I think you're right, though. I think it would have maybe suited the format a bit better. But hey, I mean, it is a fully painted animated film in a period where hand-drawn animation is pretty much gone. Where we, you know, Studio Ghibli is pretty much one of the few studios that still holds up that art form. So just on in itself, Loving Vincent is already exciting just as a, as a technical achievement. I'm still looking forward to seeing it, even though I've heard it's not the strongest film. But yeah, just basically based on that technical achievement alone, I'm really quite interested. Hmm. It does look really beautiful, and you can find Jake's full review at makethe-switch.com.au. and Loving Vincent is in cinemas now. Also out today is Bad Mums 2. Following up last year's parental comedy, Mila Kunis, Kristen Bell and Catherine Hahn are back as those dysfunctional mummies at the most chaotic time of year, Christmas. Overworked and underappreciated, as the festive season descends upon their families, these mums are headed straight for Santa's naughty list as they battle crowds, gather the perfect presents and assemble an unforgettable meal, all with their own mothers looking over their shoulders. It's the most wonderful time. Christmas is a magical time, full of wonder, excitement and joy. A time for making lasting memories with family and friends. But do you know the secret behind what makes Christmas so special? Moms. Moms working their asses off. Cooking, wrapping, decorating and shopping. Remember when the holidays were actually fun? Take Christmas back. Where's your tree? I didn't want to waste time Christmas tree shopping. I actually just wanted to enjoy Christmas this year. Amy, you're a mom. Moms don't enjoy, they give joy. That's how being a mom works. As the trio struggle to pull off a successful Christmas, they once again decide to break all the rules and do things their way, putting the ho, ho, ho back into the most horrible time of year and having some fun while doing it. I'm so down for this film. Are you? No, I hated the first one. Are you really? I really liked yeah. the first one. It was like a surprisingly solid time. Yeah, that's all I kept hearing. I didn't get to see it, but everyone kept saying how charming it, it was unexpectedly charming. I love Kristen Bell and I couldn't bear it. I yeah. really couldn't. It, she was the only reason I saw the first one and I just walked away going, nope. Oh, wow. Here's some stats from Bad Mums. Stat it up. Yeah, it was made for a budget of $20 million, and worldwide it got almost $184 million. That's not very big as far as films go. Um, you know, that's that's really small change. But in so, comparative to the budget, it's obviously quite well. Yeah, it is. And I think it did quite well critically as well. I think it was actually quite a critically well-received film, which was unexpected because, I mean, the posters just made it look like it was trash. But I have to admit, every time I hear that a franchise is making, their, you know, it's the second film in a franchise and they decide to make a Christmas film, I always go, oh, Christmas films, really? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, the cast is really great. You know, when you've got a film that has people like Christine Baranski and Mila Kunis and Catherine Hahn and, you know, Kristen Bell is just endlessly delightful. Like, you know, it kind of sounds vaguely fun, but yeah. Yeah, Christmas movies are always a cash cow anyway. Yeah, exactly. But what really interests me about this particular film, and we've seen it recently on a few different films as well, I would even say like uh, Bad Neighbours would have been included in this particular category. They're films that are aimed at parents or have a target audience of parents, which is a kind of a new market for Hollywood. Um, they've kind of realized that parents want to go out on a date night too, and they don't want to see things that a 16-year-old boy would see, like Transformers, and they don't necessarily want to see a rom-com. So this is kind of this uh, in-between where it's a comedy and there's parents dealing with kids. But yeah, it's it's Hollywood looking at uh, this this new market and saying... Yeah, there's like middle-aged people who actually want to go see movies too, which is interesting. Why did you enjoy the first one so much, Chris? It was just like a surprisingly fun time. I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit drunk. And then at the end, it got surprisingly emotional, which was the most interesting part of the film, actually. Is that at the it end of the first one... got emotional or you got emotional? No, it's in, it really went for an emotional place because over the credits, they had interviews with the lead actresses and their mothers. 
like their real life mother. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah and there was just cute. this very oh. strangely genuine and affecting note to end this, like, juvenile parents behaving badly, raunchy comedy. But it was actually quite affecting. And sure, maybe it's because my friend and I were a bit drunk and had just kind of <laughs> laughed sure. at this movie for an hour and a half. And that said, sometimes, sometimes, I mean, I remember the, like the, um, the Amy Poehler, Tina Fey film Sisters. Like sometimes, yeah, they're really dumb, but sometimes they're just kind of fun to watch and piss yourself laughing at and have a few drinks and forget about them pretty much as soon as you walk away but it's kind of a, a, a really nice way to spend a few hours so I've been meaning to catch up on Bad Mums so maybe if Bad Mums 2 is well received then we'll make a double of it spend Indeed. the afternoon get Do some it. cheese get some, <laughs> some cheese. alcohol get some wine. sit around and I'll have a wine watch, you'll it, have a watch beer Bad Mums like work. a Bad Mum would oh my god that's so true <laughs> Oh, I'll, get the oh cheese. My, we'll oh, that's exactly what my child would we'll do. Oh, cheese. I just missed those nights. I'll have my a God. wine. You'll have a beer because you're a terrible game. How that's amazing. All you drink. Is this Chardonnay? Yes, that's It'll true. Be so I don't much drink fun. wine. Go straight to Let's my head. Let's be frisky. We'll get a spicy capsicum dip as well. Oh my God! Stop Drinks it! Your head and spray You are bad. You know I can't have spicy capsicum. No! Stop! Stop! I get wild on that spicy capsicum. You know it. Well, from one moment of horror to another, proving again that nothing is truly dead when it comes to horror franchises, Jigsaw is also in cinemas today. This is the eighth film in the seemingly never-ending Saw franchise. Sequel? Reboot? Do they even have an excuse? Picking up 11 years after the death of the Jigsaw killer. Police begin investigating a spate of murders which fit the deceased serial killer's profile. Now the game's simple. Best ones are. You want the mercy? Play by the rules. Any identification on the victim? Puzzle piece. But Jigsaw has been dead for 10 years. It's not him. Can't be. No, it's not creepy at all. In a genre notorious for low-budget films with respectable box office takings irrespective of their quickly diminishing quality, Jigsaw has received a mixed response so far. Rotten Tomatoes rates it at 47% freshness, which actually puts it on par with the original Saw film. I'll complain about that later. If you're looking for guaranteed gore and little else, you can put your life on the line and try and catch Jigsaw in cinemas now, if you can be bothered. So, Daniel... 47% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Saw had 48%. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, Saw was so much better. I don't remember it being that critically savvied. Like, I remember it being really well received. I only went to see it because I'd heard how good it actually was. I didn't go to see it because I had any vague interest in it. But that's the thing. It was such a small film, underground, made for a very low budget, and it got a lot of chatter. Mm -hmm. It got a lot of good responses from both the audience and the critics, I was pretty sure. So somewhere in the past 13 years, mm -hmm. this thing has gone downhill which is, which is really surprising particularly surprising considering that every single film since has been fucking awful <laughs> i stopped I, I, I remember seeing the first saw film and i absolutely fucking loved it i blew my little my little teenage mm, mind mm. and i actually revisit every few years just to kind of go oh was it as good as i remember and i'm always impressed i mean it's james wan it's his first film and you're just always endlessly surprised by how inventive it is but i stopped after watching saw 2 because i went oh this is shit <laughs> From what I hear, they just don't get any better. Every time I've seen this trailer, the trailer for Jigsaw in the cinemas, and I've seen it many times, the more I watch, the more I just sit there going, why are you bothering? You ended this. I don't want this back. Put the money in something else. Develop something new. Start a new franchise. Why on earth do we have to bring this shit back every fucking Halloween? The thing of like, you know, he's taking Halloween yeah. back. It's like, well, how about we let someone like Mike Myers take Halloween back? I don't know, something... Um, so yeah, I have Mike no Myers interest in seeing the film. true horror. Mike Myers. <laughs> Do you mean Mike Myers, the actor? Yes. 
I'm I'm the non horror watcher here, but can can you guys riddle me this? <laughs> Why is it that the horror genre is pretty much the only one that can get away with making so many goddamn sequels? The only exceptions would be Fast and Furious and James Bond. But James Bond has like a, an asterisk next to it. But why is it horror? Why do horrors get away with making so many sequels and spin-offs and just never dying? And they just go on for decades and decades and they get the re- and then they get the reboot treatment. They can wheel these things out so easily. They're easy to film. They're low budget. America will watch them, which is important for Hollywood. And so. they don't have to have st- they don't have to have stars. People don't go to watch no. they don't go to watch famous people. They go to watch people be cut to pieces. But it, that's what thing. That's what cracks me up is that these movies deal with death. They kill off almost their entire cast and yet then they yeah. come back and then they come back and then they come back some more and then they come back after they've been dead for 20 years. You're like, fuck off already. Just die. It's the, the problem that the horror franchise has, which is why every time a film like uh, The Babadook or The Witch or It Follows or Get Out turns up, the reason why they get such mm. strong responses is because most horror films are like this are just are very cheap films that are just there to satisfy people watching. Other people get cut to pieces and watch lots of blood and gore. Stephen King wrote a book about the horror genre many years ago where he kind of puts this idea forward. The reason why we love horror is because it allows us to experience something we're not supposed to experience in real life, which is death. We're allowed to indulge in responding to and enjoying the things that society dictates we're not supposed to. So I think it's it's that. It's just people just want to go and watch something that'll scare the shit out of them on a date. That their boyfriends can expect their girlfriends will grab their hands or want to have a cuddle afterwards, which literally is what a lot of studios say about these films. Um, and they cost nothing at all. The reason why the Saw franchise exists mm. is because they went, oh, this first film cost nothing. They shot it in like two minutes. Let's keep, keep doing that, ignoring the fact it would have been developed for many years. So, yeah, I think that's the reason. It's just they're cheap and no one cares. So they just keep making them. Well, also out today is The Ornithologist. Fernando, played by Paul Hummy, is a bird watcher on an expedition along a remote river in Portugal. Things are going smoothly until his kayak gets caught in the rapids and he's swept ashore unconscious. He's brought round by two Chinese girls who give him food and medical care, but their kindness is short-lived and he wakes up in the morning after being drugged and tied up. Even if he can escape, the forest seems full of vengeful spirits and other mysterious creatures, so can Fernando escape with his life and his sanity? Now, this is really only a superficial and physical description of the ornithologist. There are so many strong religious connotations at play here. Writer and director João Pedro Rodriguez has described this as a purposefully transgressive and blasphemous reappropriation of the life of St. Anthony, who's very big in Portugal. Rodriguez is also openly gay, and this has autobiographical elements to it, so it's also a queer film with several intensely homoerotic moments which are profoundly passionate and deliberately irreligious. The whole thing is a fever dream where time and reality are irrelevant, and Fernando narrowly avoids testosterone fueled initiation ceremonies, stumbles upon a lonely goat herder, speaks to fish, and encounters a group of semi-naked women on horseback. While the concept does work on the whole, the film transitions into something more serious towards the end of the second act, which ruins its delightful quirkiness with the overwhelming weight of its religious allegory, and drags on a little bit too long. For a film about losing yourself in the wild only to find yourself, it ended up leaving me adrift in the woods. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Um, I also was able to catch a screening of The Ornithologist, and I agree with you on almost every respect, but I loved it a bit more than you did. Um, I thought it was... I just adored it. I had the best time watching it. I do agree it's a little bit too long. The serious turn it takes in the last third is a kind of takes us a second to kind of get your head around. But it's so weird and so... It's really but it's weird. Also, but also, it's so sexy. Like, I just didn't see that coming. I mean... Paul Hami is a very sexy man, but the way that he's shot and the way the film is shot and playing with religious symbolism, particularly the story of the St. Anthony, which has already kind of been vaguely reappropriated by the queer community already, uh, to see that dissected and played around with. And a lot of it is just, I just found a lot of it very, very funny. Like the naked women on horseback is just so strange. Oh, it's so out of nowhere. All the initiation ceremonies or, and it's just in every, and the two, the two, um, tourists the who two capture um, Fernando. Oh. It's so bizarre. Just this like hilarious thing of like no, we can't let any men touch us and the, all this really subtle context of like 
of sex. It's just, oh, it's so over the top and hilarious. But the really lovely thing about the film is that it doesn't try and explain itself. It doesn't try to apologize for itself. It is entirely what it wants to be. And it's such an expertly made film. It's beautifully performed, beautifully directed. It looks gorgeous. It does. Uh, and I just found it, oh, I, you know I mean, I love uh, films that are riddles. I love films that you have to kind of work to solve a little bit. And I loved that I got to the end of this film and I went, I haven't solved this, but I enjoyed the experience of trying to break it down. Like, I would have given it four and a half stars. I was one of my favorite films of the year so far. Um, in, a, in, not a, in a not particularly strong year, I was really surprised to how much I was taken by the ornithologist. And Paul Hammy is just so fucking sexy. Like, <laughs> oh my God, it's just insane. When the, watch, yeah. when the two tourists tie him up, it is just like, what is happening? <laughs> what is going on? This is very confusing. Yeah, that's when you know it's taking a very different path. <laughs> yeah, and it's so great that it just does it. It just doesn't bother to ease you into it. It's like, bam, you've gone from a guy going on a kayak watching some birds to all of a sudden I'm tied up on a tree and they're talking about spirits and they're going to castrate him. Like, it's just so great. It's so great how much it doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, I loved it. Can't wait to see it again. Well, you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and The Ornithologist is in cinemas now. You can also find Three Summers in cinemas today. Written and directed by Ben Elton, the film takes us on a journey to an Australian music festival over the course of three consecutive years. Another year, another festival. G'day folks, welcome to my country. It's a camping holiday, but with folk music. What's not to love? Mm. Welcome to the Theremin Revolution. Mm. Mm. Do you jam? Do I jam? How was it for you? I've never blown up an amplifier before. Well, that's because you've never played with me. It's a great little festival. It's too safe. They book dinosaur pub rock bands. I am a 26-year-old folk chick, lucky enough to get paid for it. I'm not going to pretend that pub rock is my scene. It is not pub rock, it's folk rock. Folk rock is pub rock. The punters love it. Punters loved Hitler. Wow. This is Queenie wishing you all a folking good night. It's a joke. Please don't write in. With Ben Elton's wit and satirical edge, this feel-good music extravaganza starring Magda Shabansky, Michael Caden, Deborah Mailman and Robert Sheehan was the centrepiece gala at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. Also in cinemas today is My Little Pony the Movie. Bringing 80s nostalgia back to the big screen, the film has a brilliant cast, including Emily Blunt, Kristen Chenoweth, Liev Schreiber, Michael Pena and Sia, who also penned a song for the soundtrack. In this glitter-packed adventure, the main six must embark on a journey to save Ponyville after being threatened by a dark force. I'm Princess Twilight Sparkle, and this is my home, Equestria. A land filled with magic, music, and most importantly, friendship. Life is perfect. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? How about we start with your complete and total surrender? Easy as pie. Oh, I love pie. We need help to save Equestria. I love this very moment. It's all on me. I'm the one Tempest wants. We're in this together. Let's show these little ponies how it's done. It's, it's the magic of... Yeah, yeah. Friendship and flowers and ponies and blue. Along the way, Twilight Sparkle, Applejack, Rainbow Dash, Pinkie Pie, Fluttershy and Rarity meet new friends and accomplish exciting challenges on a quest to use the magic of friendship and save their home. What the fuck? <laughs> now, let's just breeze past, the, you know, the boring Australian film. <laughs> Ugh, gross. Who wants to talk about that? Let's talk about My Little Pony the movie. Let's. Um, what the shit? <laughs> let's go over that cast again. Emily Blunt, Kristen Chenoweth, Liev Schreiber, Michael Pena, Sia. What's happening here? <laughs> I don't know. Does my, does my Little Pony have, like, money? Like, millions and squillions of dollars to throw at these fantastic Probably. actors? Apparently. 
I mean, it used to be a massive franchise. I'm, I assume kids are still playing with them. So My five-year-old niece is obsessed with it. I can tell you that much. There you go. Then, yeah, there's definitely money in it. I honestly didn't know this film was coming out until it appeared out of nowhere like a demon. <laughs> <laughs> like a sparkly demon. Yes, exactly. Like, like a sparkly so demon. Oh, my God. <laughs> but seriously... Of the names of all the the ponies, how would you feel being Rarity with ponies named Twilight Sparkle, Rainbow Dash, Fluttershy, and Pinkie Pie? <laughs> You'd feel pretty lame, wouldn't you? Pinky Winky and all the Teletubbies, Feather Bottom, which and one's the gay one? Sparkly ass and which <laughs> one? <laughs> Sexuality and gender doesn't exist in the world of My Little Ponies. Mm. I'm guessing. Oh. I think it does. Please, expand. No, this movie just looks like an acid trip. Like, <laughs> it looks insane. Something you'd want to watch while on edibles? Like, kind of. <laughs> I just love that they use the magic of friendship. It's not about, you know, finding your true self or the magic of, like, love or the magic of... I don't know, together or some something else, something other cliche that these you know people tend to use. It's the magic of friendship. I thought we left this shit behind in the eighties. Like this this animated care bears rubbish. Like really? <laughs> I'm sure actually, why are we blocking it may be it may be the cinematic masterpiece of 2017. Like move over moonlight. Call me by your what? You get out. It's all about the My Little Pony movie. Yeah. The Oscar goes to My Little Pony for best adapted screenplay, best picture. The voice performances are so amazing that they introduce an Oscar finally for vocal performances in an animated film. Finally. Just because, I don't know, Emily Blunt off the, off the fucking chain, mate. Daniel, I'm sensing some sarcasm here and I don't understand why. Hey, if Kristen Chenoweth finally gets her Oscar, like, I'm down. Give her the voice acting Oscar for My Little Pony, the movie adapted from My Little Pony, Friendship yeah. is Magic. I can't wait to see Sia perform her original song at the Oscar ceremony. Hey, look, she probably will. <laughs> Let's be honest. Like, yeah, we're joking about it, but she probably will. <laughs> Let's hope. This is totally one of those films that gets nominated for an original song. We live in a world where Suicide Squad has an Oscar, so realistically anything's possible. <laughs> anything can happen. Yes, here's the real question. Is your five-year-old niece going go see My Little Pony the movie in cinemas. Only if I take her, and let's face it, after this discussion, I probably will. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, she'll have a great time, she'll learn about the magic of friendship, and she'll have a lot of pretty colours thrown in her face. So like, many colours. So many colours. Yeah. How can we begrudge that? Daniel? It might be the most important cinematic experience of her young life. <laughs> And more importantly, which My Little Pony is going to become my favourite? My money's on Applejack. See, that just sounds filthy. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to just explain I'm why. So I don't think Applejack is going to be my favourite. Is it going to be Pinkie Pie? Yeah, Pinkie Pie for sure. No, I was leaning towards Rarity. Because that's what you are. A rarity. Because they sound like the dud Aww. one. <laughs> a unicorn amongst ponies. Oh my god, stop it. <laughs> Save it for the wine and cheese and bad mums oh, tonight. I really think I'm more of a fluttershy, personally. <laughs> no shy. one in the history of the universe has ever called you shy, Daniel. No, I'm a rainbow dash, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, finally, also out this week, National Theatre Live's presentation of Salome hit cinemas this Saturday. Daniel took in this production, so how did it work on the big screen? In the latest broadcast for the 2017 season, National Theatre Live presents Yale Farber's radical reinterpretation of Salome, the biblical figure who danced for her uncle King Herod and in return demanded the head of John the Baptist. Drawing on the little we know about this woman, and more importantly, the enormous amount we don't know, she redefines her as a revolutionary who commits an act of defiance against the Roman occupation of Judea and the men who have taken ownership of her. Visually breathtaking and deeply fascinating, Salome has all the trappings of a landmark feminist theatrical event, yet never quite reaches the emotional heights it aims for. There are so many tremendous ideas and dramaturgical coups in this production, but all of it is delivered by a cast in ponderous speeches, often yelled to emphasise their importance, creating a cacophony of sound that becomes almost impenetrable. This is also not a production served well by the National Theatre Live format, Farber's production filled with far too much detail for the camera to capture, and missing the smells and textures that would have made the theatrical experience all the more powerful in person. 
That said, Salome is still the kind of production we rarely ever see in Australia, both for the rigour of its ideas and the breathtaking Middle Eastern textures, languages and music, which makes this a screening very much worth checking out. I'm giving this one three stars. National Theatre Live Salome is in cinemas this Saturday and you can check out my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. Now let's check out the upcoming films in our trailer wrap. Here's the new trailer for Mudbound. Violence is part and parcel of country life. I learned how to stitch up a bleeding wound, load and fire a shotgun. My hands did these things, but I was never easy in my mind. Way down in the water. I held his heartbeat in my head. Way down in the water. All that time he was gone, I only prayed for him. Over there, I was a liberator. People lined up in the streets waiting for us. Sometimes I actually miss it. Yeah, me too. I'm coming back from the fire. You're the one I always talk about. I own and I own parts so the only way to get up from under that foot. I don't want you working for them. I won't be working for them. I'll be working for us. When I was to fight for my country to come back and finally had and change a bit. I don't know what they let you do over there, but you in Mississippi now. You use the back door. I'm really excited for this film. I've been following it since it premiered at Sundance at the start of the year. And I've been following the director, Dee Rees, since her film a few years ago, um, Pariah. Who, because Dee Rees is, you know, a queer woman of colour making a name for herself as a director in Hollywood. So I'm super down for whatever she has coming up next. And this looks spectacular. Like, the visuals, the yeah. cast is amazing. Carrie Mulligan, I love her. Anything Carrie Mulligan does, I'm totally down for. I saw her on stage in New York. I interviewed her on the red carpet for Great Gatsby. <laughs> Battle <laughs> rumble at the Switchcast! <laughs> Battle Royale! <laughs> These two again. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. This film has been a while coming. Like, haven't they? Didn't they film this quite some time ago? And it's taken a while for it to complete editing and get distribution. I mean, not that that is, looks like a sign of anything, because all the reviews it's been having have been spectacular. Um, but it has been a while. Like, we waited a while for this film to turn up. Um, I think so. I think it shot. I think at like the start of last year. But the editing process was quite long. It's about two very different families and in each of these families every character has their own story their own arc that is covered Mm. in the film what they did in the editing process was to essentially edit each of their stories as if it were their own film okay so they took the story of the white family and the black family and kind of made distinct films about them and then found ways for them to speak to each other and inform the other story through editing so I think that's partly why it's taken so long. It's taken a while to find the film in editing, which is super interesting and fascinating. There's already talk of it being a serious Oscar contender and awards contender, which is made even more fascinating yeah. by the oh, fact yeah. that it was picked up by Netflix, that Netflix is distributing it. Based off what we were talking about a few weeks ago, this is really interesting, the fact that uh, that Mudbound could actually be Netflix's first legitimate contender for an Oscar. That's yeah. kind of exciting. And and this one actually looks like it has a seriously good chance. And certainly by the, the, the calibre of the film, but also just from the competition with it this year, there aren't that many films to really work against it. And there are very few films about the African American American experience this year. I think Get Out is almost considered the only other real contender. And the quality of what we're seeing in this trailer, I think this might be a film we need to keep an eye out for. Well, you can check out Mudbound when it starts streaming on Netflix on the 18th of November. Now let's take a look at the first trailer for Winchester, starring Helen Mirren. It's gargantuan seven-storied structure with no apparent rhyme or reason. Each maze of halls more confusing than the next. It's under never-ending construction. It was built on the orders of a grieving widow. Do you believe in ghosts, Doctor? I do not believe in anything I cannot see or study. has a power we've not seen before. It has found us. Look, I know this looks like trash, but I'm kind of there for it. <laughs> like, as soon as they said, it's a seven-story house with 500 rooms or something, and it's Victorian, and I was like, I'm here. I'm with this. 
Helen Mirren is in black and a veil. How did and Helen she's... Mirren get into this house, though? That's the question. Well, I mean, she's probably like, I need a paycheck. Um, I've <laughs> used up all my money after Fast and Furious 300, or whatever film she was in. And this looks like fun, so I think I'll just um, give it a go. It'll probably have a really great first act, and then a kind of okay second act, and then in the end it will just become some sort of like emotional denouement where all of a sudden you just kind of go, oh, that's sad at the end but then again not i mean it's also directed by the guys who directed predestination and daybreakers and undead they're the 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 spirit brothers their films if they're not always successful at least they're interesting so who knows i'm there i like i love a good victorian ghost story in a haunted house and particularly when you've got a dame in there hey if you're down for this film because of the directors then why are you not down for jigsaw which they also directed (laughs) are you fucking kidding they did not Really? I'm not, Daniel. Gotcha. Oh my god. Gotcha. I'm jumping into IMDb to find out. Oh my god, they did. Oh my god, no. No. Did you know that? I I need to go and I'm going to be quiet for a bit now. I doubt that. Well, okay, then I'm going to say a few things. So there's a couple of interesting facts about this particular piece. One is that it's actually been shot in Australia. So it actually has a really good Australian cast, including my second fact, one of the people who I do absolutely love. And Jess and I had a chat with uh, Sarah Snook. Love Sarah Snook. Oh, she's great. Isn't she amazing, Jess? She's so good. Um, She's just one of the most delightful people in the world. But also, and this is where it does kind of throw me off a little bit, it's one of those based-on-true-things-that-actually-happened films. (laughs) So I think the part of the film which is true is that uh, Helen Mirren is playing this character, Sarah Winchester, who is the heiress of the Winchester fortune, the rifle fortune. So I think she maybe did build this crazy big house, um, but as for the ghost elements, um, that's probably questionable. Um, this is what the film deals with. Maybe she was going mad and thinking all these ghosts were appearing in the house. She thought it was the souls of people who were killed by her husband's gun. The mansion is a major tourist attraction in California. Yeah, but it does seem to be taking the uh, true story thing maybe a little bit too far. Also, the tagline is, Terra is building. <laughs> Oh my god. That's amazing. I'm so Now that's <laughs> I'm even more there for that. Get it because it's about a building that's in the process of being built. And also Terra is in the process of being built. And the house is everything. also terrifying and has Terra in it. And the house is being built just like Terra is being built. And so one could say Terra is building. I think it's Pretty much a self-explanatory tagline. Thank God for you. I'm so pleased. You're welcome. (laughs) Chris Edwards, delivering incredible podcast content since 2017. Hashtag revelations. Winchester is in Australian cinemas from the 22nd of February 2018. Finally, let's take a look at the trailer for Den of Thieves. Big Nick, original gangster cop in the flesh. What's your tally? Four dead, six on the way to the hospital. I tell you, he's a bad guy. I'm gonna make you a deal. Give me the names of all the guys who got away. I'll get your medic. Ain't no snitch. Yo. He's done, son. We got a problem. It's major crime. Get to know your enemy, boys. Every big time crew has been busted. These are the guys who took them down. Gangbangers, these are not. Whoever it is, they're addicted to heists. Anybody moves, you shoot them. You understand? Sooner or later, they'll need their fix. You could? Yeah, man. We're good. Save the plans. We're trading up. The Federal Reserve. It's like Fort Knox. At any one time, there's anywhere between 500 and 800 billion dollars in there. Every millimeter of it covered by cameras, sensors, and motion detectors. Stand across the street and stare at the building for two minutes. You have security on your ass. Only bank that's never been robbed. That's why we're gonna rob it. Uh, is it just me? I'm getting really sick of these films. Yes. These like cop, bad cop, good cop, bad guy, bad, I don't know, whatever. I'm getting sick of them and none of them seem to be particularly any good or have a new spin on the idea anymore. I don't know. It's got it's got an interesting cast. I'm, Does it? Does I have it? no Does interest it? in Gerard Does Butler, it? but I like, I love uh, Pablo no. Schreiber. And O'Shea Jackson Jr. I think is great. I loved all the women in the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking at the cast, I'm like, wait, there's... Oh, wait, there's two... Two? Women. 
three. God, that is too many. One, the third one listed is woman at hibachi table. <laughs> That's actually yeah. the most incredible role. I've read the script. The monologue she gets at the end is just amazing. Fourth is bank employee and fifth is pedestrian. Um... <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm the same. I, I I started watching this trailer and I gave up at 20 seconds in. I was like, yeah. oh, I've seen this before and I don't. Oh, you were smart, Daniel, because it went on for like three minutes of trailer and it felt like about half an hour. Honestly, I didn't give a shit about anything that was happening here. There was a peak of excitement when I went, oh, the leprechaun from American Gods is in it. He's hot. That's literally the only thought I had. My my main thought was Jared Butler's beard looks weird. <laughs> it looks so weird. And how unconvincing are all of his tattoos? <laughs> I mean, how unconvincing is he just in general? As an actor, yeah. No, not as an actor, mm. as a person. Yeah, as a person. <laughs> He's unconvincing as yeah. a human being. But as an actor, I thought he was great in Geostorm. Oh. <laughs> really, just oh. what would you have given that movie? What would you have said with Can't the pros and cons of Geostorm? <laughs> Podcast number four. Podcast number four, we mentioned G.S. Storm. Well, there are three things I think were done well. Just I just love how different his accent is in all films. Information on film. It is written by the and directed by the guy who wrote London Has Fallen, the sequel to Olympus Has Fallen, <laughs> a sequel that none of us ever asked for, because Olympus had fall, Has Fallen was perfectly fine as it was. So I suspect... <laughs> That may be the reason why we have this film has something to do with that. But also, this is the directorial debut of Christian Gudegast, who is the writer and director. Because I've never seen Heat. And I keep seeing people say this trailer looks like it's basically just Heat. But shit. I don't think I don't think it's getting any heat. <laughs> yeah, but like when you recast Heat with Gerard Butler in the Al Pacino role and the Leprechaun from and the Leprechaun from American Gods as Robert De Niro, he's porn stash from Oranges and New Black. He will always be Patty to me from American Gods because he's fucking hot, <laughs> Irish accent, angry as fuck. Or he's Liev Schreiber, covered in bruises. Yeah, fucking oh, and always wearing singlets yep. in that. Yes, let's continue. Okay. This has turned into a very porny episode for you, Daniel. <laughs> this one? We've had worse. Porny. Did you not listen to last week's episode? <laughs> you can catch Den of Thieves in Australian cinemas from the 25th of January 2018. And to check out all those trailers and more, head to youtube.com forward slash make the switch AU. Okay. Over the last few weeks, the foundations of Hollywood have been rocked with the industry's worst kept secret finally being exposed. Harvey Weinstein's reign as the most powerful and prolific producer has come to an end, as has his reign of sexual aggression and intimidation. As the voice of more and more actors lend themselves to this revolution, Weinstein's name isn't the only one burning in the flames. These are bad people whose careers and reputations are now ruined. But what of their legacies? These men have undoubtedly done great work over the years, but can we now look at Pulp Fiction the same way? Or Shakespeare in Love? Or Lion, for that matter. And what about those who came before and will come after Harvey Weinstein? It's a very tricky thing to navigate. Um, there's no question about the fact that what these men have done is reprehensible and inexcusable and that their legacies should suffer accordingly. But it's always interesting what do you do when, when it involves artistic work. I mean, with Harvey Weinstein, it's kind of a little bit easy because he was the producer and executive producer on a lot of these films. So the artistic integrity of those works isn't necessarily up for being affected by that. He was just a purse for a lot of these films. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these films had tremendous Oscar success and tremendous box office success. He's responsible for the careers of many, many people. I mean, his legacy is easier to kind of look at and go, oh, you know... You can separate the work from him and the work doesn't necessarily reflect him or his values or his actions. And we can comfortably just go, this was a terrible person who did a terrible thing and we should remember them for that terrible thing that they did. Yes, he's responsible for, bringing, for giving us Quentin Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson. That, to me, does not justify remembering, them as anything, remembering him as anything other than a reprehensible human being. Where I think it gets tricky is when you start to go into what's starting to happen now, we're, we're starting to hear, and what we've always heard, really, of directors and writers also being accused of sexual misconduct and sexual harassment and sexual assault. And these people who are personally responsible for the creation of artistic work 
how do we then navigate how we feel about that work? How do we feel about Woody Allen films? How do we feel about Roman Polanski films? I certainly have so much less interest and have a much more critical view of Brian Singer's work after all the the stories started to come out of the sexual harassment and abuse that that he's been accused of um, in the last few years. So yeah, it's a really tricky area to walk on. Yeah, and also it's a bit of a Pandora's box as well because like the Board of Governors for the Oscars, they booted Harvey Weinstein just last week. But where do you stop? Do you get rid of Mel Gibson? Do you get rid of Woody Allen? And also something else to take keep in mind is that no charges have been brought against Harvey Weinstein or Woody Allen or, well, okay, Roman Polanski, yes, but all any of these other directors or filmmakers. These infringements have not been brought into the legal realm yet. It's just about how people feel about them, which is obviously they are disgusted and they are irreprehensible. But, you know, again, where, where do you end? Do you agree with the decision from the Academy to remove him? And I think that also the same is happening with the Producers Guild, I think, are also considering removing him. Every major organisation. Yeah. The Producers Guild, the Directing Guild, yeah. BAFTA, all of these mm. organisations are coming out. Yes mm. and no. I, honestly, I, I don't know. Like, to kick him out, you sort of sit there, like, at first you sit there and go, yeah, you know, they're setting a precedent, but then you sit there and go, fuck, where, you know, like I just said, where does it where does it stop? Where do you go from here? Like, who now gets to decide when, you know, something is good or bad? Because Hollywood isn't just filled with um, sexual predators and stuff. Like I said, you've got Mel Gibson who came out and declared that the Holocaust wasn't real and stuff like that. But And was accused of domestic violence. Here's something else to throw into the mix for you. I'm going to give you some names and I want you to tell me what they all have in common. Matthew Broderick, Rebecca Gayhart, Caitlyn Jenner and Laura Bush. They've all killed people. Through their actions, directly, whether it be drugs, alcohol, or none of the above, they have taken human life. And they have not one of them has spent a single day in prison as a result, and they have all had careers since. In particular, Laura Bush was the first lady of the United States of America. You know, so that factors in as well. The thing with Harvey Weinstein and the thing with it being leaders within the field On top of the fact that they have committed acts of sexual harassment and sexual assault towards countless women, and in some cases men and children, you know, the more it comes out, the more horrifying the scope of this whole thing is becoming. That in itself is reprehensible enough. What is equally and more bafflingly reprehensible is the fact that this became a standard mode of practice in making films, in the process of casting and Mm -hmm. finding your crew and the filming process and the awards process, their actions sound like this was just a given in terms of you want to play the part. It's like that old stereotype from early Hollywood days of you you want to be in the movies? Well, you know, you better jump on the casting couch kind of thing. It's like that this is, it isn't just they've done this. They've now, they've conducted their business by making this part of the business, which it should never have been, which it should never be in any field whatsoever. Well, here's the question then, Daniel, and I know you've kind of said Weinstein was, yes, the producer of these films, therefore he doesn't necessarily have as as much in the way of artistic input as perhaps a director or a scriptwriter. But one thing that is going to happen if people do keep watching these films like Pulp Fiction and, and uh, Shakespeare in Love and Chocolat and all these classic films, whether or not we like it, that money ends up going back to the Weinstein company. And although Weinstein is not necessarily directly involved in the company anymore, I'll bet my bottom dollar he's still getting a cut of the profits of those particular films. So how do we feel about money from these films, which is basically dirty money, going back to Weinstein? Well, that's if the Weinstein company even continues to exist in the coming weeks and months. Because from the sound of it, there's not a whole lot of people left on that board there's not a whole lot of people of the people who are left on that board who haven't had some sort of accusation leveled against them in the recent weeks. But it doesn't matter. Regardless, these films are still going to make money over time and residuals, and that money exactly. has to go somewhere. And that's going to go into the pockets of the filmmakers. The Weinsteins are going to pocket yeah. them, exactly. I think it, it would have to come down to a decision of the stakeholders in those films that are left deciding what to do with that. I mean, that period for us, for people our age, and I, the only thing about this now, People for people our age, that period of filmmaking was a formative period for us. Films like Pulp Fiction and Chicago and Shakespeare in Love. To find out that they were created under this air of sexual terror on behalf of this man and 
many other men is really horrible. It makes me feel sick. It really does. That what we grew up believing, believing in the ideals of this industry and the ideals of this format, it, it's, it takes a battering to see that, you know, these women that you're watching on screen that you're so impressed by and are iconic to you and that you look up to may have been mistreated in the process of making this piece of art that you love. I mean, it's also the question you ask about the legacy of um, Brian Polanski or Woody Allen. How do we deal with that? Or even now with what's happened in the, last, in the last month or so with discussions about how do we deal with the historical legacy of a film like Gone with the Wind? That is, you know, on one level is an artistic triumph and a groundbreaking moment in cinema history, but it's also about slavery and doesn't depict slavery in a manner that is acceptable for us in 2017 to view and needs to be re-examined in that light. Okay, now for a change of pace. We have some great giveaways up for grabs this week. We're giving away five copies of A Monster Calls on DVD, starring Liam Neeson, Felicity Jones, Sigourney Weaver, and a heartbreaking performance from young Lewis McDougall. The film follows a young boy struggling to cope with his mother's terminal illness. He inadvertently summons a tree monster who tells him three stories and forces him to face the one truth he fears to acknowledge the most. Such an amazing film. And also this week, we're giving you the chance to win one of 10 double passes to see Three Summers in Cinemas. From internationally renowned writer and director Ben Elton, and starring Magda Zabanski, Rebecca Breeds, Robert Sheeran, Michael Caton, and Deborah Mailman, the film takes us to rural Western Australia, to an annual music festival. The feisty lead singer of an Irish rock band meets a folk music-hating musician, and sparks fly in this story packed with wit and satire. We also have five double passes to the Cine Latino Film Festival up for grabs. Screening in cities across the country, this year features a great lineup, including the comedy You're Killing Me, Susanna, starring Gael Garcia Bernal. Khan winner Gabriel and the Mountain, Venezuela's submission for the best foreign language film at the Oscars, El Inca, and a spotlight on Argentinian cinema, including Inseparable, a remake of the French hit The Untouchables. For your chance to win this and all of our great prizes, head to maketheswitch.com.au forward slash comps now. All right, before we go, we'd like to offer you some cinematic inspiration with each of us suggesting one film that you should see this week and why. Uh, for me, it would be a recent classic. It was uh, absolutely phenomenal when it came out. Uh, the number of times I saw it in the cinema, I kind of lost count. And it also did uh, amazing things uh, for its award season. I, this week, am choosing Birdman. <laughs> it is just one of those sublime films, not only for its acting, not only for its direction, not only for its cinematography, but for its ambitiousness. Basically, you've got Michael Keaton as this actor trying to put on this play, but he keeps being bogged down by the fact that he once played this superhero, which was his defining role, and trying to become something more than this particular character. And while that sounds really heavy, it's handled so well, it's light-hearted, you've got these really amazing moments, and it's all shot mise-en-scene, so it's one continuous shot for the whole thing, or at least it comes off that way. And it's just a stunning film to watch. Um, it, it still takes my breath away every time I see it. No, Birdman was great. I, I loved the idea. It kind of broke my heart that it wasn't, but I just visually I still love the idea that this film looks like it's done in, in, in a single take. I know, there are a few cuts in there that are very subtly done. You can't actually tell. But, uh, yeah, I mean, recording a two-hour film in one take is... is <laughs> challenging on a technical level let alone anything else i'm also so. a big fan of the ambiguity of the ending um i always love films that leave it up to the yeah. audience because they're, they're works of art and art is always open to interpretation so i just love it when a filmmaker is and able to sort of put their vision or their idea aside and say to the audience whatever you want to take from this it's up to you and art reflecting life with Michael Keaton as the lead actor playing the once superhero as well. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is that, you know, everyone's like, oh, ha, ha, because Michael Keaton used to be Batman. But then he went on to play the vulture in Spider-Man, <laughs> which is another bird-like <laughs> character, winged character. Yeah. So it kind of spun the it's, whole thing. Uh, <laughs> he's clearly been typecast. Yeah. I don't think he hates it. <laughs> All right, Jess, what about you this week? Uh, I'm going for, I'm actually going for a Disney film. And while you, you know, people either will get excited or groan thinking that's a bit too mainstream, I actually think this is one of the most underrated and underappreciated Disney films in history. <laughs> it has spawned a sequel, a spin-off, and a TV series. I'm going with The Emperor's New Groove. Oh, Jess, you <laughs> warm my heart. 
I was so hoping that's what you would say. It is. I love this movie to death. I saw it as, I think I was, this movie came out in 2000. So I would have been 16 when this came out. And I remember seeing it with a group of friends, loved it so much. It is a tight one hour and 18 minutes. So it's actually, uh, you know, fast game's a good game. Um, I love this movie so much. I went home, I grabbed my older brother and my father, dragged them out of the house, took them to see the movie again and watched these two grown men piss themselves laughing for an hour and 18 minutes. And it made my heart sore. So this movie, uh, David Spade voices uh, Emperor Cusco. He is accidentally turned into a llama by his nemesis, Yzma, who is played by the phenomenal Eartha Kitt, mm. and her idiotic sidekick, Crunk, who is the incomparable Patrick Warburton. And so he ends up running into John Goodman's character, who has to help him get back to the palace and turn into a human again. And it's just, it's a fun buddy adventure comedy with bad guys and good guys and talking llamas and um, a guy who can speak squirrel. The squirrel. It's like if Monty Python made an, a Disney film. Yes. Like the only thing I could yes. ever equate it to is it's like it's a, like a Python film made by yes. Disney. Yes. And the, the standout character is Kronk, voiced by Patrick Warburton, because Patrick Warburton is just oh, the master. And he actually has his own spin-off movie and stuff like that. And he's just, he's the idiot sidekick that you you love. He's so funny. He has an angel and a shoulder angel and a shoulder demon that tell him what to do. And they're all equally st- as stupid as each other. And um, yes, for young and old, uh, you have to track down Emperor's New Groove. Very good. All right, Daniel, what have you got this week? Well, I'd second that Emperor's New Groove is a fucking masterpiece, but I'm going to go back to something that's quite obscure. I've been, you know, being Boba Hayes and not done too many obscure films of late, but I'm going to go for a 1928 silent film by Carl Theodore Dreyer. Of course you are. Uh, it's regarded by most film critics. They did a poll in 2012, um, Sight and CI magazine did a poll, and this was named one of the 10 greatest films of all time. Uh, it's his film, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Oh. It's a silent film. In fact, his recommendation was that people watch it in silence his ideal version was there was no score it's about the final days of Joan of Arc it's based off the trial transcripts um, from her final days when she was in prison when she was found guilty of heresy it's a visually very striking very moving film but probably the thing that's the most famous about it is the lead performance from Renee Maria Falconetti who plays Joan of Arc and the general consensus is, is this is possibly the greatest performance ever captured on screen and to be honest i can't really argue with it it's mostly just her face because obviously we can't there's no vocal work in the film but her face just captures the tremendous pain and devotion that made joan of arc such an iconic woman and an iconic figure for so many people it is just an exquisitely made film it's tough going, particularly in a 2017 concept. We're so used to films that work very fast. And, you know, this film takes its time and it's very meditative and it's very beautiful. So I highly recommend any film buff who hasn't seen it. You just have to see the passion of Carl Theodore Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc. Awesome. And Chris, what have you got? Well, uh, the last time I was on, I recommended a Netflix original that had just been released. And I'm going to do the same thing because I'm really unoriginal and boring. <gasps> Um, we spoke about it briefly a few weeks ago. It is the new film from Noah Baumbach, and it's the Myrowitz stories, new and selected. Oh. It is maybe one of my favorite films of this year. I think it is so beautiful, so wow. fascinating. Baumbach used to be quite hit and miss for me, but recently, basically ever since he shacked up with Greta Gerwig in real life. Greta Gerwig, oh. the love of my life. My goddess. His films have taken on this much more kind of generous, open-hearted kind of tone, which is really interesting when contrasted with his much earlier, more cynical works. And I think the two tones really reached a new kind of mixture, this interesting, fascinating mixture in this new film. Um, So it's got Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler, and Julianne Nicholson, who is the standout of the film, as three half-siblings who come together in New York to be reunited with their dysfunctional family because they are all the children of Dustin Hoffman's crazy and prickly artist father. And it's just fascinating. Like, it's so beautiful. There's one moment in particular towards the end of the film that is just breathtaking in how emotional and kind of out of the blue it is. But then you realise that it's actually been 
perfectly structured. It's been building towards this moment the entire film. And I bawled my eyes out, basically. Um, so yeah, that's my recommendation for this week. The Myrowitz story is new and selected. Get around it. It's also so funny. Emma Thompson is hilarious in this film. As hilarious? This perpetually drunk, crazy stepmother. God, it's so good. Go watch it right now. It's on Netflix. Go. Because she's so hilarious? Hilarious. Hilarious. So hilarious. I'm not joking. Well, I'm looking forward to checking it out. And there's some great suggestions for you. You can find the links to all the articles we've talked about on this week's podcast at makethetheswitch.com.au. Please subscribe to Switchcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to rate us. And stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess. Uh, Miss Jess underscore Switch. Daniel. At Daniel Lemon. And Chris. At Chris C. Edwards. Like it, follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Make the Switch AU to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we've discussed on this week's podcast, as well as other episodes by visiting switchcast.com.au. On next week's show, I'll be dotting my cape, getting kinky, and sharing my thoughts on Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Plus, we'll be checking out the hair-raising tale, Murder on the Orient Express. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.